0: This is the world of Schiaparelli, and uh, I'm, I'm lucky because I, I feel uniquely connected to it, for sure. I do, I do feel like it comes naturally, and it is something that I'm naturally very drawn to.
1: I am Susie Menkes, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. journalist reporting on the global fashion industry I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives industry leaders and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing Scaparelli is one of the most famous names in fashion. I'm talking to you from Haute Couture in Paris, and yesterday was a big day for the brand. The morning started with its Haute Couture show, and the day ended with the launch of the new Scaparelli exhibition, Shocking Chic, the Surrealist World of Elsa Scaparelli." That's being held at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris, where the current designer, Daniel Roseberry, has absorbed the aesthetic of Elsa Scapparelli famous in the era of Salvador Dali and a lasting memory in fashion. The American designer has brought a fresh spirit to the legendary name while keeping to a current aesthetic. With the glory of dressing Lady Gaga in Scaparelli for the American inauguration, he tells me it is a long way from his own religious upbringing, but not from the story of Scaparelli that goes way back to 1927. So I've got a question to ask you. What's it like to be the artistic director at Scaparelli, and to connect with the world of Elsa Scaparelli herself? She was such a strong woman and she had such a personal link to artists of her era. And I looked it up and realised this was nearly a 100 years ago. How can you get those elements into your designs? How can you keep your own spirit, which is very strong, and at the same time pick out the parts of Elsa that you feel have brought you into your designs? It's something that I think I never want to
0: take it for granted because I, I really do feel like it's such an extraordinary situation that has brought me here and given me this opportunity and the fact that the fashion world and it, you know is responding and the world is responding is something that I really can't take for granted. I think that there's kind of two ways I think about that question. The one way is about how do we, how do I engage with her work and her archives? And I think that that's something really personal, really intuitive. I never want to feel like I'm doing an impersonation of Elsa's work. And so I try and wear it very lightly. And I try and, uh, just sort of do what feels right. Every season it's changing. Um, I feel more and more comfortable with the archives. You know, at the beginning, Susie, you know, I was really not interested in them at all. And as I've gotten, I think, maybe just more confident and got a few more seasons under my belt, I feel like I have a little bit more agency on over how we work with the archives. And then the other side of the question, I think, would be how do we make Scaparelli relevant for today? You know, and that is... The cultural relevance that the house has has won, I think, is the the product of a true collaboration between me and the celebrities that have gravitated towards us, the the stylists, and also a lot of luck. I honestly think a lot of dressing, unless you're paying big, big, big budgets to stars, it is a lot of luck that leads you to those miraculous moments that we've had over the past eighteen months. So.
1: But do you feel also that latest couture collection shown in January, it was so successful because you found that balance between your designs and those of Scaparelli herself. You didn't drench the clothes in colour, which previous designers have done. There was a lot of black, but with striking golden ornaments. And I feel that your focus was really on your incredible shapes and silhouettes. Am I right about that collection? 100%,
0: yeah. Seeing the focusing on the silhouette of the jackets, all of the tailoring, which felt very Scaparelli, and then the sculptural elements of the bustiers and the corsets, and just really focusing on the silhouette felt sort of revelatory in a way. And I think color, color can be a next step, but I was so inspired by our fittings, and we were fitting in black crepe corset toile which is that beautiful ecru white and then we had the gold elements in the fittings and I just thought if I'm feeling such a connection to this collection in the fittings that's what I would want the the people in the audience to see and to feel as well I tried to not change it too much from how magical things were in the fittings because that happens sometimes you see something in the fitting and it's so perfect and then when you change the fabric or the colour, it loses something. And we really tried to preserve that sort of like raw perfection that you get in that, that instant perfection that you get in the fitting.
1: I'd like to take you back quite a long way. Your origin is, after all, in, we know it's in America, but it's in Texas. And that's a long way from Paris. But then so's New York, where you worked for an entire decade with Tom Brown. And he has mm-hmm. a different aesthetic and passion for invented menswear, not womenswear. And now mm-hmm. you're here at Scaparelli, and it's such a powerful brand and loaded with fantasy. What was the sequence of events that enabled you to get from Texas to Paris?
0: When I was 12, I saw a documentary on Michael Kors and it was from the Style Channel. I don't know if you remember the Style Channel. It was really like, it was so, it was like when Tim was doing Fashion File and there was video fashion, and you were all over it. And it was really, for me as a 12 year old boy, watching these fashion shows happen, I was so enthralled. And that was the first time I remember seeing myself in, you know, Michael Kors specifically because he came from suburban America, you know, sort of like middle class family, and had sort of built this fantasy. Out of nothing in a way and it gave me permission to dream and that's why i ended up going to college at fit i mean this is a roundabout because it's a long story but i ended up at fit and uh you know it's funny a recent article said i dropped out at, after two years and my dad told me you should refrain rephrase that because you weren't a dropout you were pulled out of school and it's a big difference, and it's true. I, I, Tom pulled me out of school to work for him, and I ended up working for Tom Brown at, for 10 years. And uh, learning everything, learning how to deal, how lear, learning secondhand how Tom dealt with the role of being a creative director, but also learning about luxury, and just, it really finished my training in a way. And then after Tom Brown, I I left the company without knowing what I was going to do. I had no plans. I was wondering if I was gonna stay in fashion. I really, I thought about maybe it was time to go into interior design or furniture or something. I really was exploring other things. And then through a headhunter, Florian de Saint-Pierre, and through my dear friend Giovanna Battaglia, both of them at two different times, had put my name into Diego's uh, world that he, I was on his radar and uh, I was given the opportunity to create a, a project and I went from a dingy, freezing cold Chinatown studio where I made this project and a month later I was in the Place dome presenting it to the owner of this company and uh, the rest kind of followed from that. I mean, it was really a miraculous turn of events that took very little time.
1: Well, you certainly make it sound extraordinary. So Diego de la Valle, of course, is the chairman of Todd's group. He's an international Italian powerhouse. And so... Yeah. I suppose that you immediately felt, as you were saying, international um, with working with him and working with somebody who does perfumes and all these things. So does that really help you to feel international? Being American in Paris is not really so easy, is it? And especially when the COVID um, pandemic separated you from easy travel and it sort of stranded you in the office on the yeah. Place Vendôme. Yeah. How, how did you cope physically and mentally with that situation?
0: You know, I think the word I keep coming back to is just tension because I really feel like the tension of, of me being from Texas, from New York, and then going to Paris. There's such a, it's like being from different planets, you know, the, the cultural differences and especially working in Paris, I think is so, uh, different than working in New York, for example. And I think a lot of it was, embracing that tension in a weird way. And I, I would hope that that is what has made my time at Schiaparelli and the work that I've done here interesting for people as well, is that you feel this tension between the tradition and the reverence and the, sometimes the, and the, and the, and the pure elegance of couture and the exclusivity of couture and the tension with pop culture The democracy of pop culture and that momentum that the house has had. I think those two worlds colliding is a very direct reflection of what it has meant to put someone like me at a house like this. You know, I think it's something that, you know, you kind of have to tell the story only you can tell. And I think that that's American pop culture disrupting the the traditions of couture, is uniquely my story. And I think that people feel that in the work, or at least I hope they do.
1: Pop culture is one way of describing what you do. But (laughs) um, looking back to your life, I think a lot of people would be very surprised to know about your connection with the church and the importance of religion in your life. Do you feel like talking about that and how it shaped you and why did that influence you so much in what you're doing?
0: I mean, I think it's... The, my, my faith, the faith that I was raised with and the role that faith and just belief in something bigger than yourself has played in my life. I mean, it's so much bigger than fashion and my work. You know, it's every part of my life, I think, has been marked by, by that. And it's, it's something that I think people who are raised in the church, especially People like, I mean, gay people or people who don't necessarily fit into the narrow confines of what the church or certain churches would define as, you know, the right way to live or the godly way to live. You know, there's a a sort of deprogramming that has to happen in your life and in your mind. And you can say deprogramming or deconstruction. That was, for me, my 20s. Um, my 20s was really like, in in a many ways, like a letting go Of my faith and of the religion that I was programmed to believe in and now I think that in my 30s you can start to actually reconstruct a belief system that resonates with who I am and also my experience of the people around me because honestly Susie that was one of the hardest things is that I grew up in such a a very niche part of Dallas where I didn't know any you know, I didn't know any Jewish people until I moved to New York, for example. Like I, it was such a very, and I didn't know non-Christian people until I moved to New York. And then when I got to New York, I was like, wait a second, the, the way, the way that I was taught to believe, like does not fit the reality of the world, which is that everyone comes from different places and you inherit the, the beliefs that you're, that you are given as a child and so it is it's a huge part of it it's not but it's bigger than the fashion part of my life you know and it's still something that's organic and growing and and I'm okay with that.
1: In a way I I, when you tell me this I can sort of see what you do on stage as we might say um for your collections and um that latest couture collection in January 2022 It was so successful because you you hit that balance between your own spirit and Schiaparelli's spirit. And do you think that about Elsa, even seeing yourself as part of her family, you've talked about your family and its tremendous influence on you in Dallas, but what about Elsa, the Elsa family?
0: It's different because I'm showing up to this job a pretty fully formed adult you know, and at the same time, I have to really be open to, it's like a totally new relationship in a weird way. And I think that her work is something that is so, it's so of this moment, you know, it was of her moment, but I think that there's still something that resonates today and that makes it, honestly, it makes it very easy for me to love it and very easy for me to embrace it because it's still chic, it's still interesting, um, it's still sort of rebellious, too, and it is it is so unique. I think there was no one like her, and uh, that is incredible permission for me um, to embrace who I really am, you know, and I think that that is her ultimate legacy as a designer and that's why everyone from Gautier to Eve to Margiela has also embraced her work because it it does give the artist and the designer permission to be incredibly an intensified version of yourself you know i think that's Something that
1: was, it felt so authentic coming from her. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Mm, it makes sense for me, but of course I have the good fortune and the joy of having seen um, your work. And um, I sort of would like to take forward a little bit our conversation we just had about the um, Couture collection in January. And um, I want to read out two of the looks that are described by you. These are not my words, they're your words. Bustier in hand forged metal encircled with rings of saturn and another one that says jeweled cage dress constructed from embossed ornaments composed of hand molded leather and adorned with jeweled leaf no gold leaf Mm -hmm. Mm re-embroidered with cabochons vintage jewels rhinestones and anatomical resin elements have i got that right
0: Yep, yep. I didn't
1: understand too much of it. Can we explain?
0: (laughs) Sure. Susie, a lot of what I'm trying to do here and a lot of what my work is informed by is modernising the kind of fashion that I grew up absolutely falling head over heels with. And that is, you know, everyone from McQueen to when John was at Dior and the drama, that the kind of otherworldliness that those looks had. For me, it's about kind of taking the, the intensity and the drama of those looks, but then modernizing them, making them more real in a weird way, more wearable. And that is what both of those looks sort of mean to me. I mean, we took this bustier, which we forged in metal, and paired it with rings of Saturn because I was really into this planetary reference last season, but we paired it with a a pair of black wool pants, you know, and um, I think most of the, of the collection actually is paired with very, very simple bottoms, you know, uh, straight leg pants, pencil skirts, and Bermuda shorts. And that gave us sort of a foil which felt more modern, more in the service of the wearer, actually, as opposed to them looking like too much like dolls that were dressing up or too much like creatures who can't move. I didn't want anyone to struggle to get down that runway. You know, we made the heels very low. I wanted there to be an ease. The second look that you're talking about is, was probably the most painstaking look of the collection. And she was really the, the folly of the of the collection. And I was looking at the Ziegfeld follies in a way because they were so extraordinary, and I wanted to do something that felt really transportive, actually. And so the collection, if you look, there's there's looks that feel incredibly real and very much based in reality, and then there are looks that really push the boundary of what is wearable, what is real, and really things that are only meant to be photographed, in a way. You know, things that you can't even sit down in. And we live in a day where the image is so critical that I think there's a real place for that kind of fashion as well.
1: Well, I'd like to ask you about some of the big moments you've had over this last year. You've dressed some big people on the red carpet. And you've had tremendous recent success with Maggie Gyllenhaal wearing the um, scap to the Oscars and um, for the American election. The fact that Lady Gargoyle wore a dress with voluminous red skirt topped with a signature dove brooch holding an olive branch, that dress made history the way she looked. What are the pressures Ooh. of dressing a star for a big occasion, particularly when it's something to do with the, the um, actually not just turning up at a fashion event, but something that really touches the whole world in your country. What do you feel? Proud, pleased, overwhelmed? I feel
0: incredibly proud of my team, um, of the moment, especially the Gaga moment because it was so loaded with with meaning and with hope. And to be able to be a part of that felt, as you said, it's it's history, it's not even fashion anymore, you know? But I also really felt, and we can see this clearer and clearer now, that last year was, in the last two years actually, COVID did something to people. It made them really crave beauty in a way that was unique, I think, in our lifetimes. Because I think that we're so, now that the world is sort of coming back, we, wrestle with being oversaturated and bombarded with, with things that are beautiful or, you know, or, or, or desperately vying for your attention. But we had these incredible moments like Gaga and even Bella Hadid at the Cannes Film Festival. And I would say even Adele for her concert that where the world felt more quiet and it felt like people were not only more able to listen and to look, but even more hungry. Uh, So many people said that when Gaga came out of those doors wearing that look, that they burst into tears, not just because of what it meant, but because it was the first time they had seen fashion since COVID had started, because there was no red carpet, there was no nothing. And I think part of the power of those moments is so linked um, and indebted to the, the context. And the context was the, the global lockdowns. And so we were so, I feel incredibly proud and humbled. And it also comes with a huge dose of pressure to keep it up, to keep it going and to keep the momentum going.
1: Well, I think everybody was, has been so impressed with the way that you have connected with the real world. And perhaps that's partly because so much is talked about surrealism and um, uh, what it means in fashion. Um, Elsa Schiaparelli herself was friends with Dali and other artists such as Jean Cocteau and Man Ray. You bring surrealism to life mostly through the jewellery, through the shoes, through the bags, in other words, through all the um, surroundings of the clothes. How easy is it for you to play with accessories to catch that Surreal notion of Scap herself. Are you deep down, a surreal person? Do you see a lot of that in art?
0: I think if I'm if I was working at a different house, with a different heritage, I think I would be making a different collection. You know, I think these are, this is a this is the world of Scaparelli, and uh, I'm I'm lucky because I, I feel uniquely connected to it for sure. I do, I do feel like it comes naturally. And it is something that I'm naturally very drawn to. I don't know if I consider myself a surreal person, but I do love the this, this space that surrealism occupies. I think it was Brock who said that surrealism is the space between what is real and what is fantasy. And that, that in betweenness is what surrealism actually is. And I feel that a lot of my life is in that space as well you know I, I definitely I don't feel at home in Texas and I don't feel at home in Paris in a way I feel like torn between the two and the, that tension feels unique it's kind of feels kind of gay and feels kind of cool and feels kind of surreal and I don't know I I think that there's something really that between the male and the female the masculine and the feminine the the soft and the and the hard, the tailored and the flu, it's always for me coming back to this sort of tension between those two extremes. And um, I find that incredibly inspiring, motivating. And any time it starts going into one way or the other, I start to feel like, okay, it's time to throw something back into the mix that's going to shock the system. And that feels surreal in a way to me.
1: You shook the system a little bit in the... Um fashion people. When you um recently showed at the um, Petit Palais, somehow your Parisian headquarters at the Place Vendôme, already an iconic place, has people have thought that's where you're going to show forever, but you changed the um, attitude, changed the idea. How do you feel about it now? Is it extraordinary? It is to me, looking out in this famous column in the Place Vendôme, or did you find actually the moving to the Petit Palais Was brought another spirit, brought something more could be seen as something that worldwide, at least in Europe, you see these kind of buildings all the time.
0: You know, showing in the Place Vendôme was impossible for capacity reasons. Originally, I was really interested in the idea of showing here because I thought it would be so... I I think the the Place is the jewel of the house in a way. I really think that it is so extraordinary when you come to these salons, as you know, and we're the only couture house on the place like this. And, and it's her original salon. So, of course, there's something incredibly, um, unique and precious about it. But the thing that I did love about the Petit Palais, and I felt this immediately, was that it felt like going to church. There, you know, as a young kid going to church services every week, the, the whole, the procession down a runway, everyone is dressed in basically drag there's flowers there's music there's there's fragrance sometimes i mean it's such a a fashion show in a weird way and i loved also this connection between i really wanted people to feel like they had been to church service in a weird way or to mass or whatever you're you were used to going to and that's what the petit palais this huge ceilings and the the winter sun that we were so lucky to have in the middle of the show. you know, we had this sunshine come through. And uh, it gave a whole spiritual element to the to the show that I don't think we would have achieved if we had shown in the salons.
1: You know, it's it's very interesting for me hearing you describe it like this because I had not thought of it particularly, although I I particularly um, liked this show and thought it was very well done. But I hadn't seen it really as something religious because perhaps it's not my religion. But it it is extraordinary how you seem to be able to um, mix Schiaparelli, the um, original Schiaparelli and the artistic side there. But you can find cookie accessories and... Silly things that on sale, even at an airport you can find things now, which are a bit Scaparelli. I, I was just looking at something the other day. It was a, a ring um, on sale with a snake biting its own tail. And it could have been Scaparelli. Yes. I thought, instead of which it was some horribly cheap, badly made, um, not at all special piece. How do you feel now? You know, as the person with um in front of you, you are actually introducing things... To the fashion world, or perhaps reintroducing them, and how can you keep the scap spirit unique when you have everybody around you selling rubbish?
0: I mean, it's it's. I think it's harder than ever because I think people people's appetites for things that are precious and beautifully made. You know, it's interesting because we're we, the world is moving so fast, and things are. I think people have harder and harder time focusing for any m- amount of time on something that is more sh- more quiet in a way. And it's interesting, one of the big insecurities I had going into last season, the couture show that you're talking about is that I did feel like we were taking a step back and doing something that felt less loud. You know, there was there was no color, there were no gold boobs everywhere, there was really, it was, I was trying to rely less on any sort of like cheap tricks to get people to fall in love with the collection and to remember it. And um, I was really proud of the fact that I i still feel like we managed to break through without volume, without color, without a lot of the anatomy references actually that we've been doing over the past 12 months. But. You know, there's always going to be kind of like wolves nipping at your heels when you do something that, and I I do feel like I see people that are copying the anatomical things or even the gold has become something that I think has been referenced a lot now in other people's collections and stuff, and at some point you just kind of have to tune it out and... You know, when they zig, you zag. So you kind of have to, like, go in a different direction. And that keeps you young. It keeps you freaked out. It keeps you scared. And I think that I want to be scared. Something Tom told me is you should be scared before every season. And, uh, And I definitely was terrified before the last one. So I think that's a good thing.
1: And what about Pink? that extraordinary, hot, shocking pink. It really was shocking at the time of Scaparelli herself. That there, There's mm-hmm. a certain idea that it was vulgar, that it was just too much bringing a woman into the foreground. Um, of course, nobody feels that now because colour for women and for men is just something that you can have anything. So what's it going to mean for you? You're doing Scaparelli. she's known for pink, you haven't made much of the pink... How do you feel about it?
0: Karl Lagerfeld said, think pink, but don't wear it. And I absolutely love that quote. i It's true, shocking pink is no longer shocking to me. Um, to be honest, doing something like we did for last season, the absence of colour, felt more shocking than doing some big brazen use of pop colours and things like that. And so, But, you know... Next season, it could be completely the opposite. And that's one of the things I love about this job. As much as I would complain to anyone who will listen about the, the rhythm and the pace of the industry, it also the, the silver lining is that it gives you an opportunity to be completely reactive and rebel against what you did last season in a few months. And I think that there's something... I, I hated the idea of doing Pink last season. Next season... Pink could come up you know i could feel completely different and that's part of the joy of the of the job but i'm not that drawn to it to be honest it's probably one of i don't think elza used pink that often she did a few garments in it but it wasn't like she did everything in shocking pink it wasn't like valentino red for me was like you know valentino was using red a lot in every season it would close the collection i mean you know more than I do, but I think we could make a bigger deal of the pink than she did, to be honest.
1: Am I right in thinking that there is going to be an exhibition in Paris on Scaparelli, and this summer even? Is that true?
0: Yes. The exhibit will open on July 4th, uh, the same day as the Couture Show. It will be a sort of retrospective on Elsa Schiaparelli's life, her collaborations with the artists, and it will also touch on her legacy um, as, a, as a designer. And, uh, but it's really, the focus is, is really about her in a way. And, and we are, of course, like making a through line to the house today, but it 's really it 's really about her
1: you are very modest it 's about her, but there would never have been an exhibition had you not brought it into the limelight and i can 't wait to see it. See yourself and Me too. See, and see Schiaparelli and what she produced
0: thank you so much yeah it's it 's going to be incredible, and uh, we are really, really excited about it to see all the work presented together for the first time really ever it's going to be uh, an amazing moment i think
1: one thing i wanted to ask you about is about being american although now your work looks very international there's no doubt that you know you you come from america you're you have roots in america but now of course you're putting down roots in paris as as already did herself is it about craftsmanship and imagination that is very parisian Or is it, in fact, you've been talking a lot about the different inspirations and things from your childhood and the way you were brought up. What is the future of couture for you? What do you think you want to pull out next season and the next season that was really about craftsmanship and imagination and being international? Yes?
0: Being international, I mean, it's it's global, right? Like, everything is global now. So there's the fact that I'm an American, the fact that the house is French, means more i think to our personal history than it does to the way people think about it i i i think the craftsmanship and the tradition and the know-how is uniquely parisian for sure not even european i think in in i mean it's uniquely couture but my personal experience as a young kid growing up in 90s america i mean that is a irrefutable part of who I am, and, and I would be also remiss to, to not draw on that when I'm, and it would, it would be inauthentic, um, I think. It would be an impersonation to pretend that I'm coming, that I'm drawing from something else, I think, when I'm designing. And I think couture, what's, couture suddenly feels interesting again. Couture feels relevant because it is the pinnacle it is the the most extreme version of something, and I think extreme-ism is uh, really all we can really feel now. You know, people are dying. Like, you really have to scream now to, to to get attention, and I think in couture you can do that. I think as as luxury and luxury houses like, you know, Chanel and Dior and all those, they become billions and billions and billions, bigger and bigger and bigger the the need for couture to legitimize the exclusivity i think will also become more and more relevant as well so it becomes a sort of playground for the creative director to say something that is not commercialized that is purely the artistic vision of that person at that time and i think that that is always going to be relevant in a way
1: i'm intrigued because You give a lot away on Instagram about the clothes, the imagination, your travels. You've given a lot away to me today. I think people hearing you will really think that you're somebody who thinks about what you do, that you're quite deep in your work. But imagine you're in my position and you're writing about yourself, I'm writing about you. How do you describe Daniel Roseberry as you view yourself?
0: As I view myself, oh my God. I would never, ever, ever know how to do your job. <laughs> um, how would I describe myself? I mean, I think that there is, I know for a fact that I am not turned on by, nor am I motivated by the diva qualities that certain designers can exhibit or the attitude or that kind of, I'm really low key. I'm really really low key and I try and be as humble as possible and as down to earth as possible. But the work that I that I would hope to create and dare to create and put myself out there I think wants to be the boldest work that that I possibly can. And I think that that dichotomy between the American who is Um, aggressively pursuing a normal existence um, for himself is at direct odds and in complete constant tension with making the world's most extraordinary or trying to make the world's most extraordinary fashion moments happen. And I think that those two worlds, like sort of in, in contest with each other, feels uniquely me because I, as you know, I don't have... I have no pretense, I have no attitude, I'm I I I'm in pursuit of excellence, but I'm not not a diva. I'm definitely not the biggest diva at this house either. You can find those in the atelier.
1: I'm going to let you off naming all the divas around you, so let's have a new conversation when we're just on our own and you can tell me all your secrets. But already today you've given me so much and so interesting and I shall look at your... Um, new collection in July, yes, the um, Haute Couture, July. that um, I yeah. should look at it with added interest now that I feel I know so much more about you.
0: Thank you, Susie. I really am, like, deeply honoured any time I can spend time with you. You always ask the best questions, and I just really, it is a, always career highlight to to be interviewed by you and to spend time with you, and also... So many people have told me that how much they loved our exchange that we did on camera a few, uh, I think, two seasons ago, which I did too. So thank you, as always, and I, I, I love spending time with you. and Great to see you.
1: Well, to that, I can only say, it takes two to tango. Thank you, Susie. Thank you, Daniel Roseberry, for taking us through your surreal approach to design. Your life in America and how you keep your own spirit designing in Paris. Next time, I shall be transporting you to a San Francisco headquarters where a mushroom renaissance is taking place. MycoWorks produces mycelium leather from mushrooms, and CEO Matt Scullin is going to tell us all about it and how the humble mushroom is transformed into an Hermes handbag. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuba, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit suzymenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels.